Hello. Actually, today I'm on the Upper East Side with my man Adam that's been helping out with our dispatches and doing some of the reporting on our upcoming Week in Review. And you can check those out at FAQ.NYC. It's Wednesday afternoon, and New York's death count, finally updated to include presumptive coronavirus deaths, is now approaching 11,000 as we record this. Later in this episode, you'll hear our interviews with State Senator Zelnor Myrick talking about the census and how that's been disrupted by social distancing, and Amsterdam news publisher and editor-in-chief Eleanor Tatum talking about the state of that 110-year-old institution. Let's jump right in. Alex, do you want to fill us in on the latest development? Yeah. So today, we, what do we got? We have now there's an executive order to wear masks. A bunch of people got their money. There was a huge jump in the numbers because they actually started counting people that died outside of the hospital and without a test. There's a new regional coalition. Uh, there's some confusion around collecting bodies on Hard Island. And we're starting to grapple with a new perspective that Cuomo keeps throwing out there saying like, if we get back to a normal, we're talking 12 to 18 months, and that's on the outside. Um, looks like we've hit our apex. New York just sent 100 ventilators down to Michigan and 50 to Maryland. But the mask order, that happened today, right after we recorded on Wednesday, April 15th. Basically, Cuomo signed an executive order saying you have to wear a mask and a law enforcement person can go up to you and say, hey, where's your mouth and nose covering? They're not probably not going to bother you if you're like walking alone, but if you're in a situation like at an intersection or in front of a store, you should have your face covered. What happens though, when you don't wear a mask? And was Cuomo wearing a mask when he shared this information? I've never seen Cuomo wear any de Blasio puts like a vague attempt, like, <laughs> you know, putting a scarf on his face, almost like holding it up. Uh, even when he was opening the field hospital at the Billie Jean King Center, where there was already patients. Um, but, but not nothing happens to you yet. There's no civil penalty as of now that will come if you don't have one. You'll just be told to do something. And you're not instructed to use a surgical mask or anything. It can be a piece of cloth. But uh, some sort of law enforcement official can now go up to you and say, if you're not socially distanced, you need to be covering your face. And if you go out in public, you should be prepared with something to cover your face. Chrissy, are people in Crown Heights covering their face? No, unfortunately not. Each time I look out my window... I'll see, you know, roughly 10 to 15 people and maybe two, possibly three have their faces covered in some sort of mask. When people are walking their dogs and jogging, I have not seen people wearing masks. And then there are lots of people strolling along Eastern Parkway with no mask. So and that's what your window looks out on, right, is Eastern Parkway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to know the highest ranking New York state official who we've seen wear a mask to date. I mean, I can't think of any. And in fact, I'm finding it pretty difficult to think of a high-ranking U.S. official 
that dons a mask ostentatiously or sets that kind of example? Like, are we too mavericky tough? Or I'm not sure why that isn't happening. Does it seem alarmist in the sense that if the leaders are wearing masks, then it must be real trouble? Yeah, but I think the Slovakian president has a very cool mask outfit coordination going on that I think makes her look not only tough like a Mortal Kombat character, but also calm. Like if we could sort of incorporate that kind of ninja look, I think we would do well and not look vulnerable. But yeah, I I don't know why. Like even, even de Blasio, when he opened the center, just sort of held his scarf up almost in this weird, like, aloof way. I I don't know. I think it is interesting. I mean, there was a quick Forbes article that didn't get a lot of traction, but they were saying countries that had gotten coronavirus under control all had one thing in common, and it was all uh, female executives. Females were running the country. Um, So I don't know, (laughs) you know, if there's any quantitative fact to that. However, I do think it's pretty interesting. If we look back on this moment and we look at uh, states that have... Female governors, if there's anything in the data that shows us how information was spread or shared in some sort of gender context. Mm, we'll see. I mean, definitely different than Putin, who didn't admit anything was going on as he sat in, like, basically one of those old-timey subterranean metal outfits amongst all his ministers at the head of the table. So there's a pretty big difference. Um, the other stuff, the regional coalition... It seemed that any wounds from Rhode Island have been mended. Massachusetts came on board. So now the states in the regional coalition are New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. Is Rhode Island still using state troopers to uh, register New Yorkers at the border? That I don't know, and I don't necessarily think so. But before this whole regional coalition... It had started in Delaware as well. Alexandra Scraggs, who was over there, tweeted about that happening. And it was kind of, you know, county by county. Now I'm assuming that there's going to be at least some discussion with travel advisories and stopping people traveling uh, interstate. On the West Coast, California, Washington, and Oregon, they've called it the Western Coronavirus Alliance which there's nothing actually wrong with. Adam was just bringing up to me that it's like the Port Authority. There's many cross-state regional coalitions for various kinds of services that have well, happened. Me, looking at, at Rhode Island, Florida, and Texas, which were all registering out-of-staters as they came in, focusing on New York and Louisiana, because in New Orleans, is as much as people like this and that, Trump was not competent to shut things down. And, of course, he wants credit for starting things back up, and he doesn't actually have the tools to do that. That's going to belong to the governors. But if I, if I think about the South, if I think about American history, the idea of, of letting states put up anything like internal barriers to other states right. or these sorts of, of, of networks or coalitions, especially here in the epicenter, and as I'm getting all sorts of emails from people saying, you know, stay there, fuck you over the last several weeks. Right. It does worry me a bit. I understand the need for regional coordination. One of the governors called it the coronavirus court, right, um, which, which runs directly through New York. And we're part of this regional hub that crosses state borders, and it makes tons of sense we're going to coordinate with New Jersey, with Connecticut, with these other states. But 
it, it is it is a strange thing. I'm not all the way ready, as nervous as I am about Trump, to embrace states' rights just yet. I mean, well, I think that that's, I mean, first of all, this is going to be the exam question for my intro to politics class, because this is what the framers really tussled with when we had the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And so in the 1960s, during the Civil Rights Movement, obviously, you know, we saw the federal government step in away from the states to push forward progressive, not progressive, but civil rights legislation. And now we're seeing such a rollback at the federal level. We've been relying on the states for so many things. And so this is a, a real, it's a question mark, because there's a reason why we've had sort of a strong, robust federal government to sort of push through legislation. But we know that we're dealing with, you know, a sack of incompetent, kleptocracy-loving dimwits right now, to, to be as polite as I can possibly be. So there is something to be said about governors banding together, especially since the president has made it very clear that if you're not nice to him, you don't get any resources. I would agree. I mean, as scary as that does seem for reasons, uh, I mean— so the emails of like stay in New York and this sort of New York fear and phobia has eased a bit as the virus does spread across the country. So now it's not just Louisiana, but it's also Michigan and Trump and the federal government. They might be sending, you know, everyone, a lot of people got their stimulus today and they might be sending out checks with Trump's name on it. But at the same time, in order to reopen, I do, I do feel like working in tandem, several states, hopefully the federal government, that's not going to happen. But people's lives are at risk. So it's, whether or not being philosophically opposed to this kind of regional grouping, um, it sort of is like, well, when people's lives are at stake, but also you're facing a great depression if you don't do something and work in tandem and the federal government is not helping you, all they're doing is trying to like roll back more EPA regulations and make it the quality of life worse for poor people. You have to do something. And now what I was saying was that it's just an incredibly interesting thing, especially in the Northeast. We are going to be forced to take care of a class of people that serve our food, that clean our houses, because um, that, that take care of our elderly when they get ill. And we're going to be forced to kind of be kinder to them and be better to them health-wise because if we allow this virus to uh, spread among poorer communities, it's going to affect the communities that rich people care about. And so it's almost like this virus is going to force people to make better conditions where, where their domestic workers are, where their food service workers are, especially in the city, Connecticut. So it, to me, it makes sense that we would be shoring up and working in tandem with these other states. What's interesting is the West Coast, where, where they've been hit less hard, we're all trying to sort out the reasons why. I think one of them, if you look at a place like San Francisco, is that the working class has been forced pretty much entirely out. Whereas in New York, the areas that have been hardest hit in the Bronx and in Queens and in parts of Brooklyn, who are, who are still in the city proper and are in many ways the service class for Manhattan. That, that does mean that we have this, this obvious obligation that certainly didn't start with the coronavirus, but is, is clearer and stronger as we're grappling with this 
to take care of the more economically fragile people who are here and are, are part of the society. It's both a matter of decency and of health. There's two constitutional issues I want to touch on. I'm going to get real hoity-toity for a minute. Get real um, nerdy. Well, we're Nerd going to get out. to the census <laughs> and uh, Article 1, Section 2 in a minute. But to me, <laughs> the really big conflict we're looking at right now is between the Tenth Amendment, which came up a lot when Trump said his power is unlimited and that's how it's got to be. So the Tenth Amendment says in full, the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Meaning whatever we don't talk about here, that does not belong to you, federal government. That's the states. At the same time, in counterbalancing that, Article 1, Section 10 holds that no state shall, without consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. So there's some Supreme Court decisions limiting that. So states can do some stuff among themselves, but the way it works is, States can't enter into agreements that would increase the power of the states at the expense of the federal government. And I think that's the tension we're seeing now as these states are necessarily, I'm not faulting the governors for doing this, entering into these sorts of compacts. And this worries me, of course, in particular, because we have a more and more conservative judiciary that's going to eventually be resolving these issues. And I worry is going to defer strongly to Trump's Justice Department's perspective on those. This is the same Trump Justice Department that's now fighting against the social distancing that Trump himself has advised to say that this is discriminating against religious groups that want to meet in person in the midst of all this, which is just bonkers. I can't with that. I mean, from Rockland County to churches in Louisiana, the ultra-religious need to figure well, out how you Zoom. Two pastors who, you know, refused to respect the coronavirus and, you know, congregated. And, you know, we have Liberty University where students and faculty have tested positive. And unfortunately, they've gotten members of the community who have nothing to do with Liberty University, but members of the town sick as well. I mean, I think, though, what's fascinating about this moment is, you know, as someone who reads the Constitution and the Federalist Papers just for, you know, Wednesday, Thursday night reading pleasure, you know, we are in the moment that the framers were deathly afraid of. And this is why they have these provisions, because they, you know, didn't want sort of people breaking off and, and you know, possibly having civil wars like we saw in the mid-1800s. But, you know, when you have a tyrannical executive and abdicating legislative, a judiciary that essentially reports to the executive, this is a fundamental breakdown of all the things that the framers intended this democracy to be. That sentence structure is terrible, but you know what I mean. It's late. So that takes us to Article 1, Section 2, pretty much the very top of the U.S. Constitution, uh, which is where we find out that the House of Representatives is going to be elected by the people, that the electors, where they're going to come from, where we find out that we're going to count all the free persons, excluding Indians, not taxed, and three-fifths of all other persons. We know who that means. And it weighs out that the actual enumeration will be made every subsequent 10 years to count all the people in America. And this is key, because this is how we decide how many representatives each state gets and how much money and power flows with that. So Chrissy called and kindly let me join Brooklyn State Senator Zelnor Myri earlier today, Wednesday. And we talked with him about this earlier, and we got to find out what's happening now with the uh, census in the midst of all this insanity, 
and without people knocking on your door like they have in years past to make sure that it gets filled out and uh, we get the accurate count and the political power that comes with it. Alrighty, it is Wednesday, April 15th, and we are here with our state senator, Zellner Myrie. Thank you so much for joining us on FAQ NYC, Senator. I uh, really appreciate the invite. Thanks for having me. How are you doing otherwise? Family okay right now, um, and so I'm, I'm thankful for that and, and for my own personal health. Excellent, excellent. Well, Harry and I, you know, had you on the podcast in a pre-corona world, and we wanted to invite you back because we wanted to talk a little bit about the U.S. Census. That was something that was on your mind quite a bit when we last spoke. And so can you tell us kind of where it is and how you're feeling about the rollout for 2020? Yeah, you know, we are in a worst case scenario uh, as it pertains to the census. We know that our communities, certainly the ones that I represent, but black and brown communities throughout the state and the country have historically been undercounted. And now with the onset of a global pandemic that none of us have lived through in our lifetimes, uh, that is only exacerbating the gap between communities who were uh, counted and, and those who were not. So right now, the self-response rate for the census on a national level has been about 48%. The state of New York uh, as a whole is closer to 42% self-response rate. Uh, but we see in Brooklyn, we're much lower than that. And in Brooklyn, we're at 35%. The congressional district that encompasses my Senate district, the ninth is about 37%. And New York City as a whole is at 37%. So we are behind where we were at the same point in 2010. I think the national rate was somewhere around 66% at this time. So uh, it's really, really troubling. And coupled with the disproportionate impact that this virus has had on communities of color, uh, it is a double whammy for us. We are usually undercounted. We are suffering. We're losing population. And we're not being counted as well. And so I'm really concerned about that and really trying to do my best to inform folks about it. So I know that back in November, you were talking about how census spending is a uh, racial justice imperative. And the issue is always undercounting. That's been the case census. It's been the case in other ways with the coronavirus and not having those numbers at all until quite recently. Like, is there anything to be done here past informing people in terms of funding or pushing to get people to complete this? And can you explain to our listeners who don't already know what's at stake? with the census and with those numbers? Sure, and it's a good question. You know, I think in the first instance, we have to demand that the money be actually released. And I know you're asking the money for the census outreach hasn't been released. On the state level, it has not. And, you know, I think there's a, a patience uh, that we can have with the state government uh, because they've been dealing with this pandemic and really trying their best to allocate the resources that already exist to deal with that. But we allocated $20 million in the budget, not this past April, last year for census outreach, and that money has not been dispersed. And so when you talk about simple outreach procedure, sending mail to people, sending phone calls, the city has done text banking to reach out to folks. None of that has been done yet. So I think that as a populist, we should be demanding that those forms of outreach continue even uh, in the midst of this pandemic. And the impact of being undercounted has also been highlighted by this crisis. 
I represent four hospitals in central Brooklyn, most of which serve populations that are serviced by Medicaid. And we just cut millions of dollars to Medicaid in this past year's budget. But that is a representation of the cuts that have been existing for the past decade here in New York. We've lost three hospitals in Brooklyn. We've lost almost 20,000 hospital beds statewide. And you can imagine where those cuts happen and they were in communities of color. And so when you talk about the census and what it's counted for, they are allowed to cut in our communities because the census data says that we have an undercount. And so even if we have uh, the need for 40,000 hospital beds, 50,000 hospital beds, if we're only counting 10,000 of us, then that's what the allocation is going to be. And so it is so critical that we not be undercounted in this iteration because literally lives are at stake. So, Senator, in a district that is hard to reach when we're not in a pandemic, what are you and your office and your colleagues doing to reach, say, uh, poor New Yorkers who don't have access to the Internet and you can't reach in, say, traditional ways of, of getting in contact with them? Yeah, this is this is a really tricky effort for us uh, because we know that in our communities, folks are not going to be inclined to fill out the census unless they are reminded several times. And in many cases, unless someone approaches them at their door, we know that we cannot use the latter in this pandemic. And so we're going to have to ramp up the former. And that means dedicating the mailings that we send out to the census and making sure that people are reminded by it. It means uh, using tools that we might not have used before. And so many of us, certainly in my position, I had to, in order to obtain the office, I had to do a lot of phone calls and phone banking uh, to reach voters. I think the approach to census outreach needs to be similar. And so we're looking at how we can do that type of outreach, uh, calling people, texting them, reminding them that, that the census is coming. And then we're hoping to do as much collaboration as possible with our colleagues on the city level and our colleagues on the federal level. You know, I'm, I'm um, hopeful because the Census Bureau itself has recognized that there are difficulties during this pandemic. So they have pushed the data collection deadline to October. We don't know where we're going to be in October, but I'm hoping that that more time will give us the ability to reach more people. Do you have any uh, thoughts on the uh, potential implications of the uh, budget deal that Albany's reached and how this is going to affect your community and other undercounted ones, both as this is arranged now and as this allows for if more cuts are required in the course of the year, given how the coronavirus is impacting the budget. I know Medicaid has been saved from that, at least for the time being, so that we can get access to those federal funds. But but this looks like we could be entering a long-term season of austerity here. That's right. I have really serious concerns. I voted no on parts of the budget because of these concerns. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I not only represent anchor medical institutions uh, in central Brooklyn, but the epicenter of the epicenter uh, has, has been in our district as well. And when you look at the zip code breakdown, the demographic breakdowns, when you look at what has been happening in our nursing homes, a lot of that has been concentrated in the community I represent, so I cannot support those portions of the budget that would institute the cuts to our health care provision. I'm also concerned that the answer to our revenue shortfalls will be austerity, 
uh, when we had the opportunity to raise revenue otherwise. And I think there is a difference in opinion on whether this is the climate for us to be considering raising taxes on the wealthiest of those New Yorkers. Uh, but I think that we have to put every option on the table. You know, I don't want to see what we have seen historically, and that is during austerity, those who are most vulnerable amongst us are the ones that suffer the most. And I think that a, an approach that says the people who can afford to give more should give more, and we should be protecting the most vulnerable, I think that's the approach that the state should be taking in the direction that we should head in. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. I didn't want to take too, too much of your time, but we have a, you know, a diverse listenership. Uh, what do you want our listeners to know at this moment from you and your office? You know, I would first say thank you to all of our essential and frontline workers. Uh, they have been doing phenomenal, phenomenal work each and every day. I'm so grateful for the work that they're doing. And I would urge us to not just let our gratitude be in words, but when we are on the other side of this crisis, that each and every one of us fight to provide for those essential workers and fight for a society that gives everyone the opportunity to prosper. This crisis has drawn into sharp relief the disparities in services in this nation. And I hope that when we get through this, that we will fight for a more equitable society. So I really appreciate the time that you guys have given me. We're going to make it through this, and I hope to see everyone on the other side. Well, thank, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, is there a way you can fill listeners in on, may not already know, that they can fill in the census and get their information in if they're at home, maybe they're nervous about checking the mail, since there's not likely to be someone knocking at their door anytime soon? Yeah, absolutely. And so you can now, for the for the first time, fill out the census online. Um, and so that is my2020census.gov. You should have also received something in the mail, um, a, a reminder. They're going to be sending out a second wave of reminders starting this week. And so folks have the ability to do that. You can also fill out the census by phone. There is language assistance if English is not your first language. And so we have many ways for folks to do it. I would also encourage folks, if you have any questions, to reach out to my office. Uh, my district office number is 718-284-4700. We are still virtually open. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. State Senator Zellner Myrie from the 20th Senate District in Brooklyn. Thank you so much Thanks, for joining us. No, thank you guys again for the invite. You've been listening to FAQ NYC with State Senator Zellner Myrie from the 20th District in Brooklyn. Thanks so much for tuning in. And don't forget to tip your grocery workers. Take care. FAQ. It turns out Senator Myrie isn't the only person who's keyed in on the census, of course. We also have Bronx Representative B, better known as Cardi B, speaking up about it in this clip. New York City, 2020 is a huge opportunity to make our voice heard. This year, we have the power to decide our city's future, not just for the next four years, but for the next 10 by getting counted in the census. The census is about power, money, and respect for our communities. If our city is undercounted, we risk being underrepresented, especially our communities of color. In 2010, only 62% of New Yorkers responded to the census with the lowest response rates in our black and brown communities. 
In 2020, I'm going to tell you something. We can let this happen again. If you want to stand up to the status quo and the five people in power who wants to silence us, start by getting counted in the census. The census is safe, easy for everyone. And remember, the citizenship question is off the census. No matter what anybody tells you, immigrants with or without papers count too. Mi gente presente. Go to my2020census.gov now and fill out 10 simple questions to get counted. So, yeah, I definitely thought that that was one of the most effective breakdowns of why we should fill out the census and the importance of the census. Um, in addition to that, this week I spoke to Eleanor Tatum, who's the publisher and editor-in-chief at the Amsterdam News, one of the oldest black newspapers in the nation, about the importance of local media and local journalism during this particular pandemic time. Take a listen. All right, good morning. This is Chrissy Greer from FAQ NYC on a beautiful Saturday morning. I am here with Eleanor Tatum. Good morning, Eleanor. Good morning. How are you? Oh, you know, living the dream. <laughs> Hopefully. In quarantine. Living the dream in quarantine. Um, <laughs> I wanted to speak to you because the Amsterdam News serves as an important resource for so many different communities. And what we've talked a lot about on FAQ is how information gets disseminated to different communities at different points in time. And I just wanted to ask you, where do you see the role of the Amsterdam News and sort of local news outlets and also ethnic media in this particular moment in time of quarantine and the coronavirus sort of going through various communities at different rates? Well, I think it's very important right now, as I believe it is important at all times, but particularly right now because, you know, there is information that our community needs that they're just not getting in other places. You know, a lot of things don't really hit home until they hit home, literally, mm -hmm. when we see that our neighbors, our politicians, um, our friends are being hit by this, this horrible virus. And when we're able to communicate that this does not discriminate in the sense of who can get it, mm -hmm. and we're trying to let people know how they need to keep themselves safe or at least try to keep themselves safe, you know, we're a great resource for that. And we're the ones that actually can get to the community and, and say something. I mean, when you look at some of our areas, you know, people are still doing business as usual, and that's just not okay mm -hmm. because we're dying at alarming rates and if we look at all the news media and now the national news media is picking up on this as well you know there's a disproportionate number of people of color who are dying from the coronavirus and that has a lot to do with underlying health conditions and lack of access to to good medical care and you know we need to talk about these things and we have to let people know that the best way to stay safe is to, you know, shelter in place if they possibly can. But if they're going outside, you know, to wear masks and to wash your hands and stuff we've heard over and over again. But for a lot of people, they don't take it seriously until they see that their brothers and sisters have fallen from it. Mm -hmm. And as far as putting together the paper, has anything changed for you all in, as far as production? I mean, Lots of listeners can go to AmsterdamNews.com, but as far as, you know, you all still print a physical paper once a week. 
has that production line changed at all in this time? Oh, it's it's completely changed because, you know, just like I'm saying to everyone that's listening to this podcast, you know, shelter in place, most of my staff is at home as well. So we are working remotely and we are putting together the paper remotely and we're collaborating online to look at pages and to make sure everything is looks good and that things are edited properly. And um, it's a completely different process than one that we've used before. Mm-hmm. And it has been a steep, steep learning curve, but we're doing it. And, you know, we still haven't missed an issue and we will continue to to publish. Uh, it, one of the biggest challenges, though, with publishing is finding outlets that are still open to, to sell the paper at. I mean, of course, you've got people that subscribe and they get that through the mail. But, you know, there are other people that we really want to get the paper to, and it, we're finding it very, very challenging. You know, we would love to be able to bring newspapers to the senior citizen homes and to places where food is being distributed and give the paper out for free at this point because we think the, the information is that important. Now you've touched on the finances of putting together this paper, and we know that ethnic media has been in a tenuous position for quite some time. Do you think many ethnic media outlets and and the Amsterdam News in particular? I mean, do you think you can weather this storm if it goes on for more weeks and months? I sincerely hope we can. Um, We're going to do everything in our power to continue to weather the storm. I mean, we, just like other small businesses, are applying for the stimulus package loans um, and grants and other grants as well. Currently, we are part of a group with LMA, which is the Local Media Association, which deals with small newspapers across the country. And through them, we have a fundraising effort right now, mm-hmm. like a lot of newspapers do, both mainstream and community, to, to raise money so that we can make sure that we are able to maintain and hopefully to thrive in this, in this new age of corona mm-hmm. um, and pass that through the LMA. Um, and give butter, uh, yes, that's right, give butter, B-U-T-T-E-R. You can make donations directly to the Amsterdam News, and those donations are completely tax deductible because they're going through the LMA and then being given out as grants to us. So if you you go onto our website, you can uh, press the the link on our website. Our website is www.amsterdamnews.com. And uh, you can give. And, you know, every dollar is appreciated. There's no donation that's too small. This means keeping our writers and our editors and our business folks um, employed, um, as well as also making sure that information is getting out to the community. We've started a daily COVID-19 newsletter, which is going out every afternoon. And you know, that's another thing that is very important because news is changing so quickly. We can't afford to just have it every just once a week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're doing that on a daily basis. Well, I mean, if our listeners go to AmsterdamNews.com, I mean, there are several front page articles about um, COVID-19 in the Black community, about NYCHA and maintenance and worker safety, about low-income zip codes and how the virus is spreading through, um, about Rikers Island and what's going on. So if you're interested in a racialized analysis of what's going on, this is obviously the place to go at AmsterdamNews.com and the Give Butter link is on the right-hand side of the website. And so Eleanor, what should our listeners beyond the action steps so they can click on the link uh, on AmsterdamNews.com and donate to not just the Amsterdam News, but you know, lots of other local newspapers. What else could our listeners do 
to support local media, not just in this moment, but moving forward? Well, um, ask that the people that you buy from for all different things advertise within the, the black press, within the local media, get subscriptions, buy the newspaper when you see it, talk about the newspaper. You know, log on and like posts that we've done on Twitter and Facebook, retweet them, repost them, send people our way traffic wise and just keep a conversation going. You know, we're only relevant if people are reading and engaging. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all very, very important. And uh, you'll sign up for our newsletter as well. And how can they do that? On the website, um, there is a button where they can sign up for the website. I mean, sign up for the the daily updates and the daily newsletter. Well, Eleanor, I so appreciate you joining us on FAQ NYC. And hopefully our listeners will not just support uh, local media, but specifically support the Amsterdam News since you all are providing such a great resource to not just the Black community, but New Yorkers and and folks who, who read it from across the country and across the globe. Please stay safe. And... Hopefully, when this is all done, we can um, have a nice FAQ. NYC Harry and I had a party planned. Um, that is not to be, but we will make sure we... Um, well, it's not to be right now, but it is to be in the future. It is to be in the future. And the future is, is just around the corner, um, especially as spring is is heading our way. So, um, uh, Except for the fact that they have just announced that all public schools will remain closed for the end, till the end of the, in, through the end of the school year. So you're homeschooling, yes? Um, well, yeah, we're doing it online. Our teachers are piping into our living rooms every, uh, every weekday. <laughs> every weekday. Every oh. weekday. And it's definitely interesting. Right. Well, I want to wish you and your mom, especially in your family, a happy Passover. I'm speaking to Eleanor Tatum, the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Amsterdam News, one of the oldest Black newspapers in the United States. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us on FAQ NYC on this beautiful Saturday morning. Thank you, and please, you too, stay safe. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of FAQ NYC. I'm Chrissy Greer. My co-host is Harry Siegel. We want to send a special thank you to Senator Zellner Myrie of the 20th Senate District in Brooklyn, as well as Eleanor Tatum from the Amsterdam News. As always, our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn. We were assisted this week by First Spouse, Adam Levy, who assisted with information technology and some reporting, and our producer, who puts it all together, Adam Kamara. We used to record at the Mixover Institute at NYU. Um, that's the Mixover Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. And during this pandemic sheltering in place, we are recording from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. DC. Next week, we're going to be rolling out a new Patreon. FAQ NYC will start inviting listeners to give us money for special treats, depending on what tier of money they give us. So stay tuned for that rollout. It'll be great. If you don't want me to show up at your house and give you a hug at this time, the best thing you can do is contribute. 